Hello, and welcome to Why Now, a production of EPAM Continuum's Resonance Test podcast. This series explores the relationship between cultural trends and disruptive innovation. We seek to answer the questions, why is now the right time for this idea to go big? What made the market ready for it? And what might be next because of it? Our first topic is the rise of alternative proteins. Vegetarians everywhere are no strangers to the plant-based protein. Tofu and black bean burgers have been around forever, and although the idea of alternative proteins isn't new, the public's reaction to it is. Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are everywhere. You can find them at grocery stores like Wegmans, Whole Foods, and Kroger's, burger joints like Burger King, White Castle, and Red Robin, and fast casual restaurants like the Cheesecake Factory, TGI Fridays, and Del Taco. We saw this boom and asked, why now? What's different about now that didn't exist five or ten years ago? Is it the potential environmental impact, current attitudes towards health, or simply that this protein has a kind of black magic that's winning everyone over? To find out, we started by sitting down with Air Mir of Clover Food Lab. Air studied material science at MIT and got an MBA from Harvard. And in 2008, he decided that the most meaningful difference he could make was to open up a restaurant that didn't serve meat. Clover has been serving the Impossible Burger in meatball form since 2016, and we were particularly interested in his perspective because he was an early adopter. Let's take a listen. So welcome to our studio. Awesome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, Why Now was about um, asking what's going on in the world today and like why is now the time for it? And the reason I wanted to speak to you specifically is that you are a first adopter, an early player in this field. And I think there's a lot the world can learn from what you have learned by coming first. Well, I hope so. We make a lot of mistakes. So it'd be good for other people to avoid avoid repeating the things that didn't work for us. Right. I saw that you publicize your mistakes. Yeah. We try really hard to be transparent in all the things we do. And I think a big part of that is being honest about the things that don't work out so well. Yeah. Um, and we do that because it's, you know, personally, I'm like happier to be part of a organization that's not hiding things. Uh, but also we're in the food industry and I think it's the most dishonest industry there is. I don't think there's any industry that's better at lying to people. So, um, so it's a space where there's a lot of opportunity for creating real relationships. I think you have to start with trust to do that. That's a really big statement. Why do you say that? Well, I can't think of any that's worse. I mean, I think of this idea of honesty, like the gap between what people think something is or what's happening and what actually is happening. And so that distance, I don't know any industry where that gap is bigger. I mean, you, any any piece of the food industry, you like turn over a leaf and another and another, and you find out that like what's actually in your food, how it's actually made, who makes it, it's none of it's what you, what people imagine. I mean, People go to grocery stores and pick up butter and look at the pasture on the, you know, on the carton. And I think that their impression, if you just pulled a bunch of customers in a supermarket, I think a lot of them would think that they have cows that are in a pasture that made that butter. And of course, none of the cows involved in making that butter ever saw a pasture. Yeah, no happy cows. But I think you see that just throughout 
our industry. There's there's just a lot of deception, and a lot of it's we you know, our industry invests in that deception because there's this hard truth, which is if you do something really good, you know, it's not necessarily going to help you move your business unless people know about it. So if you do the right thing, you have to do the right thing and communicate it to people, right? But um, I think what a lot of found is you can just communicate to people and skip the first part, and it's a lot cheaper and easier, um, and you still get the same result. So I want to back up and talk a little bit about Clover's long-term aspirations. So I, I found a quote, and it said that the long-term aspiration was to define a lifestyle centered around a new cuisine and a positive conscientious relationship to food. How is that modeled today still? Yeah, not too ambitious, right? <laughs> no, right. It's it's a huge thing. Uh, no, I mean we we remain more ambitious probably than we have a right to be. But there's a lot of change that has to happen in food. You know, uh, and more simply, our mission is to make vegetables like irresistible for people that love eating meat. So we're we're not out there trying to change meat eaters into non-meat eaters. Um, you know, we're not trying to create an army of vegetarians or vegans. And I think that'd be really hard to do. And I don't think it would have a ton of impact. Instead, what we're really interested in is people who love eating meat, just switching out uh, individual meals that they eat. So that's what we're trying to do. That's like the, that's the mission of the company. And we've had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how you get that done. And I think, um, you know, there are probably different routes you could take, but we've decided to take a path involves a lot of like honestly, a lot of really hard work of engaging with people, you know, helping them learn about their food decisions, helping them taste things that they haven't tasted before. And I think centering all that around like some palpable sense of community. So it, I think it's it's slow work, but it's sort of sticky in a sense. I think once people fall in love with Clover, it's harder for them to eat other places. Right now, 60% of our company sales come from customers that eat with us more than twice a week. So we're like not quite, not as common an experience at a coffee shop, but we're definitely like much more like a coffee shop than most restaurants and that we become like a kitchen outside of someone's home. What do you think has been the biggest reason that's happening? Well, we do a lot of things very deliberately to help create and build community. It's a lot of teeny little design decisions and it's some bigger things too. It has to do with the culture inside the company. I mean, just to give you some examples across that spectrum, the person taking your order is not behind a cash register. And I think that um, that's one of the bigger things I think we've achieved in uh, is like getting rid of that moat between a customer and somebody who's involved with making their food or delivering their food. Um, all the counters in our restaurant between the kitchen and, and the customer area are all at like um, ADA height, so like 30, 32 inches the whole way, which may sound subtle, but if you next time you go into a restaurant, you know, you go into a, whether it's a McDonald's or a Chipotle, you'll notice there's an area of the counter that's at that lower height and the rest of it tends to be pretty high. And again, it's sort of this physical, but also a symbolic barrier between the people making the food and the people eating or ordering the food. I want customers in a restaurant to be able to see how we're making their food. And so, um, and I want us to be honest about that. So the dishwashing, you can see. And, you know, I think most of the time we have it pretty tight and clean the way I'd like it, but sometimes it's not. But in any case, we're honest about it because you can just look over and see it. There's a trend in our industry to have a, like an open kitchen, but what will be done is like the pretty finishing work in the open kitchen and there'll be a wall still. And two thirds of the kitchen will still be hidden behind a wall. And, and Clover's not like that at all. You can literally see everything. Uh, even our commissary, which is over in East Cambridge, we built a restaurant into a commissary so you can go there and sit and eat a meal and watch all the heavier food being, you know, food prep being done. But I think that the, like I said, there's so much uh, lack of transparency in our industry. I don't feel like we 
I don't know how we'd be successful saying our soup is fresh, you know, when you can go into 7-Eleven and they have a sign saying our soup is fresh. Mm. So when you were talking about repeat customers and they're coming multiple times a week, what do you think is Clover's most popular dish? Because I'll tell you my story is that um, I love your popovers. I am so happy that you have popovers. It's like it brings such joy to my life. So I was wondering, like, what do you think is the dish that would cause like outrage if it disappeared from your menu? Well, you have me smiling. I like the popovers a lot, too. They're really great. The, you've had the popover breakfast sandwich? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have it like once a week, every Friday. I'll have like coffee and a popover breakfast sandwich. It's a nice like last breakfast of the week. We're, we don't have that big a menu. It changes a lot, but um, things that don't succeed really get moved out pretty fast. That said, some things are more popular than others. Right now, we're selling our Brussels sprout sandwich. That sandwich is the most popular sandwich all year. Um, it just, it beats everything else. Nothing else sells anywhere close to the volumes that sandwich sells. It's uh, like kids everywhere wouldn't believe you, you know? Like Brussels sprouts is one of the most stigmatized vegetable ever. Yes, well, that that touches on why we have that sandwich on the menu. I was, I always loved Brussels sprouts, even when I was a little kid. I, just, I always liked them a lot. I still like them a lot. And it bothered me every time somebody would say something mean about Brussels sprouts, which happened a lot when I was a kid. I would just like, it hurt me a little bit. And I felt defensive of the Brussels sprout. So, <laughs> and people, I mean, I was, you know, I was growing up in the 80s, like our presidents were saying bad things about vegetables. I, I think Reagan said he hated vegetables like in public. And I think that, I think I remember Bush saying some specific vegetables he hated because I think like, was it broccoli or something? They dumped a whole bunch on the White House lawn because the broccoli industry was mad about it. It was, it was something like that. I can't remember because I was little, but, but there was like, it was popular to hate on vegetables. And Brussels was like, the most hated of anything, I think. So that always hurt me a little. And I love Brussels sprouts. So I designed that sandwich as like, a, I don't know, to bring people around um, and sort of see some of what I love in the Brussels sprout. And it's been really successful in doing that. We came out with that sandwich. That's That's been on the menu for a little while, I think six or seven years. And when it first came out, there really weren't any Brussels sprouts. Now Brussels sprouts become a bit of a trending thing. But at that point, it wasn't. And there was no way growing them in New England. So we only got, we could find like two acres. And we, we didn't only had a very short run because we just ran out of local Brussels sprouts. But now there's acres and acres being grown because the demand's um, grown, which is really great. <laughs> so tell me about um, your impossible meatballs. What is the story of how that got put on your menu? Because you have a place of, of vegetables. So why why add that? Yeah. You know, so back to this goal, we really want um, meat lovers to be eating uh, a couple meals a week with without meat. The average American eats more than three meals a day with meat, which sounds sort of crazy. More than but three. Yeah. It's like 3.2 servings a day. Uh, but be, we, it's because Americans eat more than three meals a day on average. Uh, we eat a lot of meat. And so if I am able to serve somebody a meal of clover who normally would be eating meat, then I have I get to swap that out and I get to claim credit for that impact, which is a huge impact on the environment. Right now, nine out of 10 of our customers are meat eaters. So I think we can be pretty confident that 80% of the meals we serve are more substitutions for a meal that would otherwise have some meat in it. And if you do the math on that, like already at our teeny little size right now, we've displaced something like the equivalent carbon emissions of 40,000 automobiles, uh, which is wild. And hopefully we'll grow a lot from here and do a lot more than that. But And I think we have indirect impact too. People start eating differently. 
at home and so forth. So that that's that's what we're trying to do. And the reason I start with that answer about the meatball is it's important to understand how the meatball comes in. I think we're really clear on that mission. And, you know, I would serve whatever food I thought would get us to that. We'd do because it's what needs to be done. We've decided, like, through experience that the best way for us to get there has been to give people really delicious vegetables. So if somebody loves eating meat, the way you're going to get them to eat a meal without meat is not by, you know, deprivation, but instead by like attracting something really beautiful, like the local Brussels sprouts that are only available this time of year. And, um, you know, that truffly taste that they get when we cook them the way we do brings people in the door and has them pass by their other options, whether it's a chicken salad or a burrito or something like that. Uh, so most of our success has been through beautiful vegetables that we've been really carefully sor- sourcing. The impossible is totally different, as you alluded to. It's like it's um, it, it's made from vegetables, but it's a uh, it's it's sort of a wild product. It's like what it really is is beef. It's like ground beef that's just not made from cows, and it comes in in like what's called a chub in the industry. It's like this big long sort of like a giant sausage of of like ground beef and it's in it's plastic cased in plastic and frozen and and we don't even have freezers at clover so we had to figure out we, we thought we just put it in the fridge and it thaws and it was something we were interested in trying and we did a very careful test because we really weren't sure how it would work and what we saw was that it it really having impossible on our menu does a wonderful job supporting our mission and so we're happy to have it. But we learned that by looking at people that bought it, you know, did they come back and buy it again? And then also if those people, if that wasn't on the menu, what would they have bought otherwise? And what we found was not a lot of cannibalization. When we added that item to the menu, we attracted a lot of customers that were not coming into Clover before. So that's great. And then um, people love it. I mean, it had one of the best return rates When we look at testing a new item, our number one metric is how many of the people ordering it today have already tasted it. On day 15, what percent of those orders are repeat orders? Because that tells you that people liked it, you know, because otherwise you're looking at trial, which isn't going to be sustainable. We all thought that impossible because they're putting a lot of marketing dollars behind it and everything else would be mostly a trial thing. People would be like, oh, what is this? Come in, taste it, and then never come back for it again. But what we saw was that the repeat rates were uh, through the roof. They were just phenomenal. And, um, and, and then as we added it on the menu at all of our restaurants, we saw that play out. Um, and it had a really major impact on our business. It's been tremendously positive. It's still stupidly popular. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's such a simple sandwich. Like the margin on it's horrible. I, I make way less money selling that than anything else on the menu. Um, so if you want to help Clover buy something, not the meatball. <laughs> But uh, uh, unless you wouldn't buy anything, then buy the meatball. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's uh, it, and it's not as good for the environment. I'd much rather you buy a chickpea fritter sandwich. You know, relatively speaking, just to rank these things, um, you could eat one hamburger, you know, or you could eat like two chicken salads for like equivalent CO two emissions, right? Or you could eat like four to six Impossible products. Or you could eat like 20, 18 or 20 chickpea fritter sandwiches, you know, all equivalent emissions. So this is why we want more people eating vegetables because it's got this awesome impact. So Impossible is much better than the meat options, but it's not as good as the as like the other options we have on our menu. But it's it's bringing people in that wouldn't come in otherwise. So why do you think it's popular? Because I, I remember the first time I tried your meatballs and I remember that the way it was sold to me by my friend was you have to try this you won't be able to tell that it's meat. 
And, you know, like I've heard that my whole life from every vegetarian in my life of try this tofu, try this seitan, try this bean burger. And so there's like a high skepticism. You're like, all right, cool. But like, really? And and I remember that the first time I tried it, I was like, well, I mean, they got something. They got something here. And so that's kind of stuck in the back of my mind. But then you're also talking about the environmental thing. And you're also talking about trying to eat less meat in our lives. So why is it so popular? You know, um, well, first and foremost, the meatballs we're making are really, really yummy. They're like super delicious. And I think a lot of people like our meatballs better than they like any meatballs they know of. So I think we have like a portion of fans that are just like, that's the best meatball I can buy. Um, and we blind tested it. I mean, from your stamp, what you were just talking about, people cannot distinguish it if it's blind tested against beef meatballs. Um, and I think part of why ours tastes really delicious to people is unlike the meatball they may have gotten at a sub shop or a pizza shop, um, our meatballs are made really fresh with really beautiful ingredients. It means we're cracking open the garlic ourselves every day instead of using canned garlic. It means that we're using fresh herbs in there that somebody's chopping up and they're organically grown and grown locally. So they're really fresh herbs and really fragrant and delicious. And the tomato sauce that we're using with those, we make in-house um, each day. So there's a lot of components to the meatball being delicious that have nothing to do with impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that a lot of its success is because it tastes so great. I mean, I if I didn't think that, we would have made a much easier meatball, right? And we could have used garlic powder in there. We could have used a pre-made tomato sauce. It would be a lot less work for everybody, a lot less cost for us. But I don't think it would taste as great. And I don't think it would sell as well. So I think that's a part of it. Uh, it's a really delicious dish. But I think it's more than that. Uh, we had another um, product we tested um more recently, um, a company called Just, it used to be called Hampton Creek, but they changed their name. And they have an egg product called Just Egg, and it's not made of egg. Um, it's made of like pea protein and some other things. And and um, that said, when we put it on our breakfast menu, it just totally bombed. No one cared. So I think that there's a piece of the impossible meatball that's driving its success, which is that it's a really delicious meatball. There's another piece, which is people, I think, want to reduce the amount of beef they're eating. And I think that's got to be a part of it. And I think people don't care about reducing the amount of eggs they're eating. So what I'm trying to get at is like, why now? And have you seen any difference in your store because of that wave? I think people were... I mean, not everybody, but I think you had a growing contingent of people who were trying to avoid beef. I think maybe the reasons people are trying to avoid beef are broadening. So I think maybe at that point in time, uh, it may have been more oriented toward personal health. Whereas now it might be that that orientation shifting a little bit toward including things like the environment and also, you know, in addition to animal welfare and the environment, thinking about, you know, employees and the supply chain. Uh, So I think people are thinking more broadly now about the really crazy like meat infrastructure we have in this country. We have these giant freezers that we store surplus meat in. And the past couple of years with all the trade wars and stuff, these are like packed to the gills. And there's these crazy stories in the past year too. Like they haven't had room to put stuff in the freezer because we have too much meat. Um, the like global, like m- the, the, the U.S. like 
extra meat supply is enough to feed the entire country all the meat we eat for like more than a year. It's like really wild. Like those dynamics are so strange because the government guarantees to buy all the extra production. Um, and so I'm not like the stats experts who check me on any of on those like specifics. But broadly speaking, that's that's the story. So I think people are learning more about, you know, what's what's underneath it all. And, and for a lot of different reasons now trying to change their diets. Um, but I, I think people were already starting to think about it then. And it's not um, it's not so much of a motivation even today where i you know i mean you see in the marketplace people aren't deciding they're not going to eat beef but if you give them an option that like satisfies is delicious and tasty and satisfies a lot of what they want and it's not beef it could you know it might work really well right because it's like it's it's a win-win-win right you know they feel good about themselves they feel good about the environment and it's cool and different yeah and i think we're we are in a really exciting time in my mind because i was talking about the lack of transparency in our industry the food industry and um, I just think that's going to be systematically stripped away. And it's not, it's not going to be on a like, strict time schedule. But I think that with social media, with camera phones, um, with customers that are becoming more accustomed to understanding where things come from and more curious about the stories behind their products, we're just going to learn more and more about the food. Um, and people are not going to be happy about what they learn. I mean, I think that if there's like a mild... A, if there's a if there's a mild dissatisfaction with beef right now and a mild curiosity to try alternatives, I think with like full information, those things won't be so mild. You know, I think people will have very very strong feelings. As you're planning for the next steps of Clover, how does this influence your thinking? Because you were talking a little about how it's expensive and it is not as as good of a return on investment, but it still fits the mission of you are a meat eater. You have taken one meal of meat off your plate. Do you think you'll come up with more interesting alternatives? Well, I think things will get a lot more crazy in the space. Um, I mean, we haven't mentioned yet, but I don't know if you're familiar with Memphis. So Memphis is like, I'd say, if you want to think about this sort of fake meat world, there have been a lot of like substandard fake meat products forever and ever, mostly oriented to people who gave up meat for one reason or another, um, usually some sort of a moral reason, and they wanted something that sort of approximated what they missed. Um, and then I think you have this next generation of things like Beyond, which I, I think of Beyond as like a better veggie burger. It's like it's a veggie burger, but a much higher quality version of a veggie burger. And their their sausages are awesome. And then after that, you've got Impossible, which I don't think of as like a better veggie burger. It's more like a beef burger that's made without cows. So I think of it uh, in a really different category. Um, you're you're gonna you're not going to fool anybody in a taste test with Beyond. Um, but with impossible, you will. And so it's, it's just different. It's a categorically different product. And then I think the next step beyond that is what Memphis meat and some other companies are working on, which is uh, truly lab grown meat. So they are, they're actually culturing cells. The reason impossible tastes different than beyond is impossible has taken uh, yeast and modified it genetically to produce um, components that are um, virtually identical to what's found in blood. So heme. And so they use this yeast uh, to produce heme, and the, which is like blood-like. It's like this irony blood-like thing, and they add that into the mix, and that's what makes it taste meaty. And when you cook, it catalyzes a bunch of like cooking reactions that smell a little bit meaty and taste meaty. Um, but the next step is you know what Memphis Meats is doing is like actually making meat, but without an animal, and um, 
you know, they talking to them, I mean, they're, they're trying to figure out a lot of regulatory things because you have to label it meat because somebody has an allergy to some meat. They're going to have an allergy to this, but it's obviously a different source. I don't know how they'll scale that and what that'll look like. I think that you could argue that if that's, you know, say better than chicken in terms of its environmental impact, it may be, you could argue it belong on the menu at Clover. I'm not sure it's what our customers would be looking for from us. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll learn more as we get closer to that. I think big picture though, whatever happens with fake meat, we're all better off if we get closer to vegetables. So you wouldn't want to like lose our direction. I mean, I wouldn't want to like become an impossible hamburger company or something. I mean, I don't think that's really the, I don't think that's a long-term answer. And I think we should be thinking further forward and I think we should be moving people. Uh, we have a lot of distance to cover. So we should really be helping people get closer to where, where the end state should be and what the food system should actually look like. Sometimes I ask really obvious questions, but I want to go back to that sentence you said. Why would we be all better off if we get closer to vegetables? Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, um, there's lots of reasons. Uh, it's it's cool. Sometimes there's these things in the world that there's these big trade-offs and other times there are things that are like happy little spirals of like positive things. You know, I think when I'm saying that, one of the main things I'm thinking about is the impact on the environment. I'm just, there's no lower carbon footprint than eating a lot of vegetables. The more you eat, the closer you are to vegetables, the more of your calories you eat are vegetables. The more meals you have that do not have any meat in the meal, uh, lower your carbon footprint. And if, if as a, if as a city in Boston, if we all ate seven meals a week without meat, our carbon footprint would change measurably. I mean, it would be an enormous actually. So that's the main thing I was thinking about in my mind. But the cool thing about this is that there are all these other major benefits. So the more vegetables you eat, uh, the more healthy you're going to be. With some really strange exceptions, like that's generally always true. And pretty much all nutritionists and doctors and anybody who studies this understand that and believe that as well. So you get more fiber in your diet, you get better variety of nutrients in your diet. Um, it's better for your uh, muscle health. It's better for your longevity. It's better for your athletic performance. It's better for how you sleep at night. Uh, it's better for your vision. I mean, just enormous number of benefits. Uh, obviously, better for your heart. Your cholesterol levels go way down. I was watching a little video on Netflix the other day, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they made a little documentary. He's like trying out vegan diet and uh, he's saying he's, he's 69 and his cholesterol is the lowest it's ever been in his entire life. And, uh, and he's happy with his like, he's, you know, still like pumping iron. Uh, what a great mascot. Yeah, it's, it's funny. <laughs> uh, but, but generally there's a lot of health benefits. There are some more subtle things with eating vegetables though. You know, if you don't care about the environment, you don't care about longevity, you may, you may care about building local food infrastructure and, it's a lot more likely that we can support local farms by buying vegetables than buying meat. And, you know, you might wonder why I say that, but farmland is more productive to make vegetables. If you're buying meat, it's a lot less productive. That's the whole carbon footprint thing. So if you want to help support farmers, you're much better off by buying vegetables, really. And the other thing that happens with it is that it's a more direct value chain. So there's been an effort recently to have some slaughterhouses in New England, but there are not many. And uh, so there's not a lot of meat produced in New England anyway. We don't really have the land for it, but a, um, a good portion of what is is actually shipped out to slaughterhouses that are in the Midwest and shipped back here. Whereas if I buy vegetables from a CSA or something like that, that's going to come right from a farm right to me. So it's a much more direct value chain. And that means more of that money gets to the farmer. We need more of that money is going into creating great soil. So that's a additional benefit that from vegetables. And I'd say the, the last one, um, and I 
I think for a lot of people, this is the first one, but if you care a lot about animal welfare, it's really hard to feel good about eating meat. I think, you know, 99% of the meat people eat in this country is sort of a, has a horrific backstory. And it's not to say that you couldn't, I think there are a lot of people who could feel really comfortable with more pastoral farm to table meat, but that's not the truth of most meat that people eat. So I think for, on all those different fronts, like we, if we love eating the vegetables and they're satisfying us um, and we can afford to eat them, uh, we get to achieve a lot of really great things. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm starting to wonder if, if like plant-based meats are, are like a gateway. They are the gateway to vegetables. And is it is it the destination? Are we going to have people to just live there where they're just going to maybe not eat as many vegetables, and, but they'll eat a whole bunch of plant-based meat? Or do you think we're going to go through plant-based meat to vegetables? Is that the dream? What is the ideal state here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think that if meat, if these impossible meats and other and beyond meat are a more comfortable way for someone to try out something a little different, then that's fantastic. Um, and I think that's probably happening with the impossible Whopper at Burger King, with the beyond um, sausage, egg and cheese at, uh, at Dunkin'. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I think that's probably a wonderful thing. Maybe it's warming some of those people up to become an audience for Clover. So I'm, I'm cheering it all on. Uh, I, I think that it's, it, but the, the effects can even be more complicated than that because, you know, we for we had customers come to us and say, "Oh, well, I couldn't come to Clover as often as I liked because my friend really likes meat and refuses to eat vegetables." And so, when I was with my friend, we could never go to Clover. But now that you have the Impossible on the menu, there's no excuses. So, I think that um, we can't forget a lot of the stuff is sort of interconnected. And so, having a really great, you know, it may be that you have somebody eating the Impossible who's never going to really love eating vegetables, but giving them that impossible option may allow you know them to eat closer to other people may allow people around them to eat closer to vegetables i was i was wondering because you kind of answered it but i was wondering what does it feel like to be you to watch um to watch this start to come into more mainstream foods like burger king and duncan and i was just at a, like a eat it joe's it is literally on every menu that i go to lately what does that feel like yeah, it's um I think it's awesome. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled Beyond had Beyond had like the best IPO of the decade. I mean, it was phenomenal. Um that's great for us. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled. Uh I think everybody's expecting impossible sort of a value powder cake too and when if they it when and if they want to go public, they're going to have an enormous valuation, which I think they probably will. No, it's it's a it's an exciting time and the issues that you know, I know Pat runs Impossible, um, and I know you know uh, the folks that run Beyond as well. They're they're smart people, and they care about. They'd be saying a lot of the similar kinds of things what I'm saying because they're thinking about these same issues on a global basis and trying to figure out what to do about them. So we're all working on different fronts, and you know, Clover is very much more uh, at the like cultural personal interface, right? Because like my success is when I have a conversation with an individual and I, and I, I get someone to try a rutabaga soup, which they've never tried before. And I like get them to bring home some different food to their kids that they may have not been sure they could do. Whereas impossible is maybe at a much higher level, but we're working on the same things and the problems are enormous. 
we have a real a really big mess. You know, I'm specifically talking about um, climate change. We have a lot of other messes too, but climate change is like a big mess that's being handed to my kids' generation. And there's never been a generation that's had to face something like that. Thankfully, we actually have a lot of resources at our disposal right now. I mean, we're at a place where we have a bigger mess and a bigger problem than we've ever faced. But we also have more wealth and better technology than we've ever had. So hopefully we can bring all that together to, you know, correct course and fix things. But there's a lot of work to do. And so I'm thrilled to see, you know, these are issues affecting all Americans. And it's affecting all of our kids. And the world they grow up in, when we make a choice about what to buy, what you're going to eat for dinner tonight, or what you're going to pick, what you're going to spend your money on for lunch tomorrow, whether or not you're thinking of it, you're voting for a certain future, you know, and, and where you place that money is going to have a direct, maybe minor impact on what the world's like in 10 years, 15, 20 and we all have, you know, we're all invested in that. So I think we all need to be working together. And so I'm thrilled that like it's showing up the menu everywhere because I want everyone to see these issues and start thinking about them. And I think the more people start to think of their food dollars as a vote for, you know, it's, it's really like a climate activism. And the more we're thinking that way, the better chance we have of aligning ourselves in the right direction. As I've noticed, uh, looking through the internet, your name is so closely tied to everything that says the future of food. Why is that? And what do you think the future of food is? What motivates me is trying to um, think forward to a place where we can eat food we love and a community that is like enriching, you know, like all the good things about food, some of which we've stepped away from, like, how can we create a future where um, we have all those great things and we also have really positive externalities. So how do we make sure staff are getting paid really well in our industry? Um, how do we make sure farmers are getting supported to do what they do? For me, it wouldn't be very um, motivating for me to start a burrito place or a bakery cafe or a pizza place that was just repeating all the patterns that have led us to where we are. I, I just can't see that being something that would wake me up each morning to go to work. So I'm much more interested in imagining uh, I love food and, and I love sharing it with people. And I think we should all be working to imagine how we get ourselves to that place where we keep loving food and it's doing good things instead of bad things. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, Ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Air Muir for his conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire. Gratitudes to Ken Gordon, our producer behind the scenes, and hats off to Buck Sleeper, who leads our restaurant and retail vertical. I am your host, Megan Welker. We thank you for your ears, and stay tuned to the next installment of Why Now as we continue our quest to understand this new wave of proteins and its effect on the future of food.